Amen. All right. I'm excited to get into God's word. Y'all excited to get into God's word this morning? All right. I get to land the plane this morning on our sermon series, Lost and Found. Right? We've been talking about things that are lost in our lives, right? And in talking about things that are lost, we're not talking about car keys, not talking about money, we're not talking about cell phones. Instead, what we're talking about are qualities, things that seem to be lost in our lives, things that seem to be lost in the lives of followers of Jesus. That's key qualities and actions that have somehow become less important or less visible, and they kind of need to be reestablished. So, Today we're going to finish this series with a quality, speaking about a quality that is often not associated with Christians. Y'all ready? All right, bear with me. Today we're going to talk about swagger. Y'all know what that is? Swagger. All right. Now, now you may be thinking, well, Pastor Tom, what in the world is swagger, number one? What does it have to do with the church? Why are we missing it? Why do you think we need it? So I'm glad you asked. Let me explain to you exactly what swagger is. And it's easy to see. If you are a sports fanatic, it is easy to see swagger on someone. You catch it on a sports game. You catch it on the TV. It is literally the body language of one player in that shows up to the court, that shows up to that team, and the entire team and the entire team dynamic changes with that one player showing up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? In the 90s, it was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan would show up to the basketball court with an essence of confidence in him, where you just knew by watching him that the Bulls were going to win that game. It's the same swagger LeBron James has. You know when he walks onto that court, he doesn't walk onto the court to lose a game. He walks in there to win. They've got a swagger to themselves, a confident, a caring of themselves. Nothing can stop them because they know they're going to win. Because the outcome, as far as they're concerned, is already settled. They've trained for this moment. Now, swagger is sometimes used to describe somebody who is arrogant or conceited, but this is how I'm defining it for this message. Swagger is how someone looks, feels, and acts when they know they're going to win. Now, I'm speaking prophetically this morning. Y'all ready? I'm putting it on my feet. I'm just, I'm believing the Lord for the Mets. I really am. Thank you for those few of you who are Mets fans in the house. I'm believing Jesus for the Mets. I'm walking on prophetic promises that they're actually going to (laughs) win. It's the way someone carry themselves. It's the way that they react to criticism. It's the way that they react to opposition when it comes against them. Swagger. It's the confident certainty of an expected victory. Someone with swagger knows when they show up to the court that they're on the winning side. They feel like the outcome has already been predetermined. They look past what stops other people because they know they're going to win. If you've ever watched the Olympics before, you've seen it in Katie Ledecky or Michael Phelps. When they dive into the water, you already know that they're going to win. You can see it when they're walking onto the pool deck. You can see it on their face. They've got a certain swagger to them. They know what the outcome is going to be. When the outcome is in doubt, you see the opposite of swagger. You see a sense of defeat. You see a nervousness. You see an uncertainty. You see that they're intimidated. You see that they're afraid. I'm afraid that Christians in America have lost their swagger. They've lost their confident certainty of expected victory. They act, react, and talk, and carry themselves like defeat is certain and victory is just a faint hope. 
Oh, this world that we're living in is so terrible. I wish we could take it back to the good old days. There's a lot of nervous, anxious, hand-wringing. The exact opposite of what we as believers should expect when we're expecting victory. People of God, I want to remind you of one thing. At the end of the book, we win. The sky isn't falling. Jesus is coming. We win. The ending has already been written. No matter what happens, the church wins. You don't have to run and hide and cower in fear. We are not losers. We are winners. We win. Now, I'm not introducing to you anything new. When facing big trouble or an intimidating enemy, God's people have always had a confident certainty to them. Knowing that the outcome was already predetermined in advance. So what I want to do is a little quickly, I want to walk you through biblical examples of what I'm talking about. You see, none of Israel's warriors were willing to take on a giant by the name of Goliath. They were filled with fear. They were ready to give up. They had lost their swagger. They knew it was over, that they were going to be defeated. But one day, just from over the hill came a shepherd with some swagger. And David, this little boy shepherd, said, Why isn't anyone fighting that guy? Why are you allowing him to talk to us like that? If you won't fight him, then I will because I'm ready. David walked out onto the field without armor, his only weapon being a slingshot. And everyone on both sides was nervously watching, expecting David to be nervous and afraid. But David told the giant this, 1 Samuel 17, 45. He said, you come against me with a sword and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut your head off. Now, if that's not swagger, I don't know what is. Then he continues to trash talk in the name of Jesus. I love trash talkers in the name of Jesus. Come on now. He says, today, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. So it's not just, I'm going to get you. But as soon as I knock you down, I have sure enough confidence that God is going to give us the victory and is going to defeat all of you, thousands of others who were there. David was strong and courageous because he knew the ending in advance. He already knew something about the nature of God, which is that we win. Imagine for a second if you were this little guy going up against this big guy in a fight, right? You'd naturally be nervous. You, you'd be worried about being squished like a bug. But, but there would be something different if you knew the ending. If you knew you were going to win, you'd walk into that fight completely different. You'd walk into it with a little bit of swagger. You see, because confidence comes from knowing the end in advance. Come on, we might be facing big opposition, but it's not intimidating opposition because we already knows what happens in the end. We win. If you look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's found in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's a proud man. He builds this huge statue, 90 feet tall, made out of gold, decided that everyone in the kingdom should worship him. And Nebuchadnezzar invites all the important people in the kingdom to the dedication of his statue, and he issues this decree, this law. 
He says, when the music starts, everyone must bow down and worship the statue. If you don't, you'll get thrown into a fiery furnace. The music started, and of course, everyone bowed down and worshiped. Now, it probably wasn't genuine. They're probably humoring this crazy king. Regardless, everyone bowed down. What? At least almost everyone. In the middle of thousands of people bowing, there were three guys with some swagger. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who did not bow down. When it was reported to King Nebuchadnezzar, he confronted the guys. He said, okay, listen to me. Got me? Lock, got your eyes locked on me? Ready? We're going to try this again. When the music starts, you bow. Got it? Music, bow, you now. Get it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they respond to the king. They said, we're not going to bow down, not us. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry, he ordered his men to throw them in a fiery furnace to be burned alive. Look at their response. Daniel chapter 317. Look at their response to him. He says this. They said this to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Look at verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had faith that their God was bigger than any fire. After all, they served the God who created fire. And their God confidence led them to stand up to this evil king. And what they did next was even more powerful. What they said next was even more powerful. Look at verse 18. He says this, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. Or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They only had faith. They not only had that, they had a deep trust in God. This is one of the most amazing statements of commitment in the entirety of the Bible. Even if our God does not rescue us, we will not bow down. We will serve him in life. We will serve him in death. Either way, we trust him. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, he ordered his men to make the furnace seven times hotter and then commanded them to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the fire. And that fire was so hot that the soldiers who threw them in were killed by the heat and the flames. Look at verse 23. Here's what it says. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. These three men were tied up, they were bound up, they were thrown in, but when the king looked, he saw that they were no longer tied up, they weren't even burnt up. Instead, they were walking in the fire, and there was a fourth man walking with them. I believe that it was Jesus walking with them in that fire. These three men, listen to me, this is, this, is, this is a powerful revelation. These three men were so unbelievably committed to God that they are the first humans to meet Jesus, the Son of God. 
The part of the story that I love is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they just weren't just sitting there. This is like the ultimate swagger in your face moment. They're just walking about in the fire. <laughs> they weren't just talking about the weather, how hot the fire was. They weren't roasting marshmallows. They weren't plotting revenge against the king. They were face to face with the very son of God. I don't know exactly what they were doing. The Bible doesn't give us enough, enough detail. But I have to think that they were worshiping. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow or to be thrown in the fire. But God said, come on now. Walk with me. Worship with me. I'm with you in this fire. I don't think this was some sort of casual stroll to the fire, man. I think that they were jumping. I think they were leaping. They were laughing. They were shouting. They were dancing. Come on. What would you do if you expected certain death to come upon you? And you're in this fiery, blazing furnace, and it doesn't burn you. You wouldn't be going, wow, look at that. You would be jumping up, shouting out, leaping around, and then God shows up in the midst of it all. And that place that was supposed to be your memorial and your funeral became a place that honored God and the faithfulness of God? Man, I think in their heads, these guys were probably thinking about worship songs on the spot. Songs that, 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 we would, that, that later on we would probably put into words, right? You ever heard that song? There is another in the fire. Come on now. That's where this song is based out of. They were writing songs about a fire-walking, flame-defeating, fire-faithful God. There was a celebration going on inside that furnace because they discovered that no fire made by man could destroy them when Jesus was with them. And I know sometimes things look bad. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like you're going to survive. But this fire that you are facing in your life cannot and will not destroy you because you aren't going into it alone. Get your swagger going. Walk through the fire with confidence. The fire can't and won't win because you serve a God who is with you in the fire. The ending has already been predetermined. And guess what? We win. The book of John tells the story of Jesus' last meeting with his disciples before his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. The disciples, they were worried. They were afraid. They were concerned about what was to come. So Jesus kind of gives them a little bit of a pep talk in John 14, verse 1. And he says this to them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And it says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In other words, guys, don't be afraid. Trust me, you're going to be okay. It might be tough on earth, but I'm getting heaven ready for you. In the end, you win. I'm coming back to get you. And Jesus would go on to finish this long teaching that would take several chapters, and he finishes this long teaching in John chapter 16, verse 33. And he says this, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus said it to us himself, expect trouble in this world. Jesus promises that it's going to happen. It shouldn't surprise us when trouble comes. We shouldn't be posting on Facebook or on social media, this world is going to end, this government's going to end. We should, we, we come on, man, church, we, we got we to gotta be bigger than that. 
I'm ready for people to start living out the gospel, not only in person, but online. Stop posting encouraging, faithful messages instead of obsessing about everything that is going on around us. But no matter what happens, no matter what man says or does, when this life is over, guess what? We're headed to Jesus. On that day, all the stuff that seemed like it was a big deal here won't matter at all. Because guess what? We win. Now, Paul was an apostle with some swagger. He endured persecution, prison, shipwreck, stonings, and beatings. And through that all, Paul kept this winning perspective. And so he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And I love this. What then shall we say in response to these things? So out of all this craziness that you see that's going on around us, how should we, as believers, respond to all the craziness that's occurring on around us? He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this, verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In other words, who can come against you guys? Who can bring a charge against you? Who is he that condemns? In other words, who's the one who could even bring a charge worthy of considering against you? Isn't it Jesus who died for you? More than that, who's raised to life is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. So in other words, it's, what it's saying is for the Christian, the only person who could really legitimately bring a charge against you is Christ Jesus. And he's not going to bring a charge against you because he died for you, was raised to life for you, and is already on your team interceding on your behalf. So, and then he comes to this conclusion. Who will ever separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can we jump to verse 37 real quick? He says this. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is powerful, for I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I kind of rewrote this. Y'all okay with that for a second? I rewrote this. I'm going to give you the Pastor Tom translation. Ready? Because God is on our side, no one can defeat us. He sent his son Jesus to save us, and he didn't stop there. Jesus is watching out for us, giving us what we need. What can separate us from God's love? What can defeat us? Can trouble? Can hardship? Can persecution? Can terrorists? Can pandemics? Can a Supreme Court? Can politicians? Can lawyers? Can laws stop the goodness of God? No. No, no, no. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. We are confident because we know the ending is determined in advance, and we win. We win because of the love and the power of Jesus. And I'm confident that neither death or life, nor anything that's happening now, or anything that's going to happen, no obstacle, no enemy can separate us from God's love. Proven to us when he sent his son Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, our healer, our redeemer, and our deliverer. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this, verse 14, he says, in the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual 
victory parade. Man, that's a great word picture. Some of us, our lives are one unending funeral procession. But it's a perpetual victory parade when you're following Jesus. Why? Because you are coming from a victory and you are headed towards another victory. It may be difficult to achieve that. It may be difficult to get there. But this is scripture. We win. You say, Pastor Tom, it doesn't feel like victory. Well, I understand. Every day is not a good day for you. Hard times come. Bad news comes. That's part of life. Jesus predicted trouble, but through it all, we've got confidence. We win. And you say, you're just ignoring the world that's around us. No, we aren't stupid. We, we acknowledge the reality around us. We can read the headlines. If, you're think, if, you're, if you're watching and you think, well, he's in la-la land. No, 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 no. We get it. We understand. Even though it looks like everything is going down, we don't lose confidence. Jesus is spectacularly awesome at comeback stories and victories. We know the ending in advance. We already know what happens. We win. From the beginning of the church, the church has faced hardship and opposition. Now, in America, we go crazy about this. This is nothing new in all of human history. When Nero was the emperor of Rome, he began the most horrific persecution of Christians that the world has ever known. Christians were burned at the stake to provide light for his drunken parties. Nero was determined to destroy all followers of Jesus. Guess what? Nero is dead, and we're still here. The church of Jesus Christ is alive and well. You need to know this. No government, no politician, no political party can defeat the church of Jesus Christ. No law can ever destroy the church of Jesus Christ. No group of people with a campaign against it is ever going to knock down the church of Jesus Christ. You need to know this. For centuries, evil dictators and ruthless terrorists have tried to destroy the church. None has succeeded and none ever will. We win. And it's time to start acting like it. We're winning, but we spend too much time walking and talking like losers. The time for fear is over. God is not the author and creator of fear. Just know this, when fear grips your heart, it's not from God. I remember several years ago, I, I heard this all my childhood, but several years ago, right? We did VBS in the church. And this was the memory verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. Not fear, power and love and sound mind. Fear comes from looking at the circumstances around you instead of looking at the God who surrounds you. Quit spending so much time listening to Fox News, OAN, CNN, MSNBC, and everyone who is predicting disaster out there. Instead, build your faith and confidence by reading what happens in the end. Get your swagger on, man. We win. I've read the end of the book. Y'all ever like that? Y'all ever like knowing what the end is going to be? I've read the end of the book. 
I want to give you the clip notes, the spoiler alert. We win. Revelation chapter 12. Can we go there? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I love this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now, time out. Before, let me give you some context to this. Revelation, the book of Revelation is written by the apostle John. John would have likely been around 90 years old, a little bit older, perhaps, during the time that he receives this revelation. And what actually happens to John is he, he is one of the disciples who followed Jesus. As a matter of fact, he is called the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He had such a close relationship with Jesus that it said that when they were eating together, Jesus, he would recline his, his head on Jesus' chest. Now men are afraid to, to give godly, um, you know, godly signs of affection to each other out of fear of giving off the wrong perspective. But the ultimate sign of masculinity is when you're comfortable in your own skin and you can show love to another man in a godly way. And so this man, John, had a close, tight-knit relationship with Jesus and so close was his relationship with Jesus that when he was asked to renounce Christ, he was literally burned alive. He was boiled alive. And when that didn't work and that didn't kill him, they sent him to be exiled on the prison island of Patmos on his own, which is where he receives this, the book of Revelation. So he's been beaten down his entire life. He hasn't seen Jesus since he was a teenager. Jesus finally shows up to him in physical form when he's already in his 90s again. And he finally sees his friend towards the end of his life. He says this. This is the revelation that, that Jesus gave to John. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For, listen to this, <laughs> for the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I love this, verse 11. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Pause. Time out. I want, I want us to consider this for a second. We have walked around for a while. We have lived in this culture since the 90s, early 2000s of willy-nilly Christianity, where all we wanted to do was um, encourage people. And we're going to encourage them, encourage them, encourage them. And encouragement has its place in the body of Christ. Don't get me wrong. But in the process of encouragement, we have glanced over the power of Scripture to change and to transform people's lives. And what we've done is we've said to people, it's okay. Continue on in your mess. Jesus is okay with it all. We've, we've neglected to tell people, yes, Jesus loves, Jesus calls you to him, but Jesus also calls you to transformation and life transformation. And that process and how you walk that out is called your testimony. Well, guess what? If your testimony is in shambles, you ain't defeating nothing. The enemy will come like a flood, like a storm into your life and wreak havoc in your life and in your family. The idea here is that we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The testimony of those who've loved, served, and followed Christ. Your testimony is meaningful. It means something. 
Then I love this next part of this verse. For they love not their lives even unto death. Can we go back verse 11? For they love not their lives even unto death. Here's where we get messed up as Christians. I think sometimes we love our lives too much. We're so scared of death because we don't really understand the riches of glory that is about to be imparted on our lives the second that we meet Jesus face to face. We're so scared of doing anything meaningful with our lives. Guess what? See this? It ain't going with you. This is a wallet. Don't have a lot. All that plastic, it ain't going with you. You have the opportunity to leave legacies on this earth. Because the idea of being a Christian is not that we live for the here and now, that we love this life so much that we live for the here and now. The idea of being a Christian is that we, we love what's coming next so much. We love it so much that we're willing to die for it. That's what sustained the church through centuries of suffering and persecution. The idea here is that I'm not living for the here and now. Guess what? When I sit down and I talk to my kids... You know what my daughter did yesterday? <laughs> we, were, we were at the church. We, had, um, we came to the church yesterday to, to, set, um, to finish setting up some of the Mother's Day areas. And um, there's this picture uh, frame that we got out to, you know, to kind of give instructions where the Mother's Day station was and print out something. But in that picture, there was a man with a woman and they were hugging each other, walking on a beach. And so she pulls out the paper, Belle, and she comes to me and she goes, Dada, is this the kind of man that I need to find in my life to be with? I said, well, that picture only tells one part of the story. But if he loves Jesus, if he loves your family, if he loves you and treats you well, then yes. That's the kind of man that you want. So why, why do I do that? Why do I instruct my daughters? The other day in Puerto Rico, there's this big thing that's going on in Puerto Rico right now. There's huge violence against women. Women were, one, uh, just a professional boxer just two weeks ago murdered a woman who he had gotten pregnant, murdered her. And so I sat down with my seven-year-old daughter and I showed her the funeral procession of this 20-something-year-old girl. And I sat down because I wanted to explain to her what it's like to be in a situation with another person who abuses you. And I told her because I'm instructing her. See, I'm building something inside of her. Little by little, not so that one day I can go back when her man is beating her down and go back and tell her, you shouldn't be in a relationship like this. I'm building something inside of her so that she knows the second time, the first time that it happens or she gets any indication that something's going to go down, she knows to walk out. I'm building something in her. Why? It's not just for her sake. It's not just because I love her. It's because I care about the generations that come after me. I care about the situations that my grandchildren are going to have to live under. I care about what that's going to do to my great-grandchildren. I care about what that's going to do to my great-great-grandchildren. Because I'm not necessarily living for the life that I love right now. I'm living for legacy. I'm living for future. 
I'm living for what's to come. So, so you know what? Maybe I work three jobs. Maybe I work four jobs. Maybe I bust my behind right now so that they won't have to do that. So that they can uh, uh, have access to things a lot sooner, a lot quicker than I did. But I'm not living for me right now. I'm living for their blessing. And I'm trying to teach them so that they can do the same and think about generations to come after them. I want these things to be so deeply ingrained inside of their heads that their own convictions would tell them this situation is wrong. It's not right. I shouldn't be in this type of situation. This is not a God-honoring situation. This is not a situation that's going to produce any life for my future. I want them starting to think about those things already. That's the idea here. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Look at verse 12. It says this. Verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. We're going to rejoice then, so we might as well rejoice now. Whatever happens, the ending cannot and will not change. You can't change this prophetic image of what happens at the end. Jesus wrote it. It is written in the annals of time. It is written in the annals of history. It will happen. Now, I don't know what celebration is going to look like there. <laughs> Maybe you won't have pom-poms up in heaven, but I think it would be kind of cool. Can you imagine tens of millions of people in the biggest celebration in all of history waving their pom-poms and shouting in victory? And I can't wait. Church. Church needs to feel a whole lot more like a victory party and a whole lot less like a funeral. That's why I told you, sing. Shout. We've got something to celebrate. We win. We are victorious because Jesus is victorious. And even death couldn't stop him. We serve the king of kings who will one day soon return to this earth in the ultimate victory moment. See, the ending is predetermined. We win. How does that change my life, though? Well, regardless... Of what happens tomorrow. We know what happens in the end. We know who wins. So I want to encourage you. Get your swagger back. Walk. And talk. And live with the confident expectation of victory. Because guess what? In the end. We win. We win. I'm going to invite our worship team up to lead us. I believe that we get in trouble in our lives so often. It's so often of the times that we get in trouble in our lives is because we're doing one of three things. You ready? We're, we're on an archaeological expedition through our past, digging up things that don't need to be dug up and dwelling on things that do not need to be dwelt on. Number one, we are not satisfied with the present. We're where we're at in our lives and we're frustrated with where we're at. And number three, we're looking way too ahead into our futures. Concerned about what the outcome of our life is going to be. I want to encourage you, live in the present, live in the moment. You won't get the seconds and the minutes and the hours of your life back. 
might as well enjoy the process in life enjoy the moments don't be so quick to delve through the ice cream take it savor the flavor savor the moment don't be so busy trying to capture your child on a swing or your family in the best moment just enjoy the time together enjoy the present enjoy the moment that you are living in right now live a godly life build a testimony but enjoy and savor the moment in your life God will honor that he will bless that and it will reduce incredible amounts of frustration in your life let's worship King Jesus together rise to your feet and then I'll come back up to pray with you guys.